am someone who works, or at least tries to work, on ethics uh, from a variety of sort of interdisciplinary, uh, from an interdisciplinary perspective, looking at a variety of different disciplines. And I focused in, in recent years in particular on uh, the ethics of war and peace and on uh, military ethics. And um, I'm going to talk tonight about some work in neuroscience and psychology that I think is suggestive. Certainly I'm not prepared to say it's definitive, but I think it may suggest some interesting lines of inquiry both for uh, scholars, but also perhaps for the military in thinking about ethics training. Um, so um, let me begin with uh, an incident in November 2005 uh, in uh, Anbar province, Iraq, where a convoy of four U.S. Marine vehicles containing Marines and friendly Iraqi soldiers was returning to base after resupplying a checkpoint. And the leader, the non-commissioned officer in uh, charge of the group was Sergeant Frank Wooderick. He's a 24-year-old Marine who'd been an infantry instructor back home. Uh, this was his first deployment to Iraq and, in fact, uh, his first in, uh, deployment in a combat theater. Uh, Haditha was located in Anbar province. Uh, which was a stronghold of Sunni resistance uh, at the time. Marines had suffered heavy casualties in the months before Wooderick's arrival, including six Marines who had been ambushed, tortured, and killed, all of which was uploaded uh, on the Internet. So shortly after 7 a.m., as Wooderick later recalled, an explosion louder than anything I have ever heard rocked the entire convoy. Uh, an improvised explosive vehicle, an IED, and the road had detonated beneath the vehicle about 35 meters behind Wooderick's. The vehicle was blown into the air, killing one Marine, seriously wounding another. Wooderick immediately pulled his vehicle over to the side of the road, and the first thing he saw uh, about 30 seconds or so later were five young men standing about 10 meters away by the side of a car. They were unarmed. They made no move to advance toward him, nor did they exhibit any hostile behavior. Woodrick later described what happened next. I took a knee in the road and fired. Engaging was the only choice. The threat had to be neutralized. And this was the result. The five men whom Woodrick killed were four college students and a driver they had hired to take them to classes. No weapons were found in the car. Less than a minute had occurred between the IED explosion and when Wooderick opened fire. Now, the rules of engagement in the theater required, quote, reasonable certainty that the proposed target is a legitimate military target, close quote, in order to use lethal force. And that meant that anyone who exhibited hostile action, behavior, or hostile intent could be engaged with lethal force. So the question, naturally, is how could Wooderick have regarded these men as meeting this standard? Right. So one natural account, with which I certainly have some sympathy of what happened, is that Wooderick's response reflected a failure of reason to temper powerful emotions of anger, fear, desire for revenge. Right. 
Ideally, reason would have slowed him down, would have led him to take more time to look more closely at the men to make sure they were, in fact, hostile. But on this account, he was overcome by emotion. And I certainly think this account captures some, but not necessarily all, of what happened. And I want to suggest in my remarks that recent research in neuroscience and psychology suggests that we can also describe Wudrick's actions as a failure to respond with the right emotions. Now, to appreciate this, contrast Wooderick's reaction with the reaction of Hugh Thompson, the helicopter pilot who intervened to stop the slaughter at My Lai and to rescue innocent civilians. Thompson responded immediately to what he saw with anger. In Thompson's own words, he said, I said, damn it, it ain't going to happen. They ain't going to die. I was hot. I'll tell you that. I was hot. Those who received his radio message that day reported his voice was choked with emotion. He swore obscenities, cursed, and pleaded with the air crew to come down and help rescue the civilians. Right. Thompson ordered his helicopter crew to open fire on any U.S. soldiers who tried to stop the rescue. Right. Now, I think we can say Thompson exhibited the right emotion under the circumstances. And research suggests that the right emotion can not only signal the presence of a morally salient feature of a situation, it can move us to act, that is, to take the appropriate steps in response. In this sense, it can be a source of moral motivation. Right? Hugh Thompson's emotional response led him to stop the massacre at considerable personal risk. It guided his moral perception of what was going on and motivated him to take morally praiseworthy action. For Wooderick, we might say, responding with the right emotion would mean that he responded not only with anger and fear, which were certainly virtually unavoidable, but also perhaps with a visceral emotional aversion to the prospect of killing innocent civilians. This could have led him to take just another minute or less to seek additional information about the men. Looking more closely, in other words, could have saved their lives. Responding with the right emotion, in other words, could have countered other emotions that prompted him to perceive the men as a threat and to open fire on them so quickly. Right? In fact, it could have slowed his response just enough to allow reason to begin to gain more influence. Indeed, without this immediate non-conscious emotion, there might well be little prospect that reason could gain any influence with Wooderick. So saying that Wooderick failed to respond with the right emotion is consistent with research that suggests that what we traditionally call emotional processing can play a role in some types of moral perception and judgment. And the work begins or is based on, I should say, a substantial body of research that offers an account more generally of emotion and cognition in which neural structures associated with emotion can play a crucial role in the activation of sensibilities that we tend, at least in common parlance, to think of as moral. Um, 
the work builds on research that indicates uh, that our, in general, our ability to make good decisions in a practical sense that further well-being are dependent in many ways on activity in portions of the brain that are associated with emotional processing. Now, I should say I don't like this next slide very much, but I'm going to do it just because it uh, sort of does provide some simplification, right? Um, a neural structure that seems to play a key role in this process is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, right? Uh, and in particular, the orbitofrontal portion of the system. Now, I don't like this for many reasons, but one is it sort of suggests sort of discrete regions as opposed to neural networks, right? But just to sort of orient you, and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex typically is associated with more deliberate, abstract uh, sort of reasoning. And research suggests that individuals with damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex generally uh, retain abstract reasoning capabilities, but they lack the ability to gauge the prospective practical consequences of different courses of action. They make really bad decisions, right? Um, Antonio Damasio suggests that this reflects the fact that normal decision-making is guided by what he calls emotional or somatic responses that signal the affective valence of potential future states. These operate, he argues, to bias an individual toward or away from potential responses to a situation based on the anticipated emotional consequences of choosing one course of action or another. As he puts it, this occurs even before the subject becomes aware of the goodness or badness of the choice she is about to make. So for a patient, uh, as he and a co-author put it, with impaired emotional processing, knowledge without emotional signaling leads to dissociation between what no one knows and how one decides to act. Now, the emotional signal involved in this process, Damasio and others suggest, is the product of a complex process in which, described very generally and certainly in oversimplified terms, neural structures in different areas send inputs to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex that express positive and negative affective values associated with emotionally salient features of situations that an individual confront, uh, confronts. So one structure, for instance, processes information about others' anticipated emotional states. Another uh, that ascribes belief and intentions to others. And these affective values reflect perception of the anticipated presence of rewards or penalties, if you will, from different courses of action. In other words, the anticipated emotional response, uh, researchers argue, is what guides behavior in many instances. Right? Um, and this reflects an ongoing process of learning from experience in which positive and negative affective valences become associated with certain objects or situations or activities. And at the same time, these valences are only probabilistic. Right? Since the presence uh, of these rewards or penalties are only predictive right, of what we associate with different people, different kinds of situations, different objects, 
these probabilities are adjusted on an ongoing basis as we gain more experience. So there's a comparison of the anticipated and the actual emotional consequences of certain kinds of behaviors um, and, or choices. And then there is, uh, in essence, feedback in which there is a, a learning process that goes on. There's also adjustment of the intensity of the emotional states that are associated with different outcomes. So again, comparing anticipated with actual emotional experiences. Right? And research suggests that the ventral medial prefrontal cortex computes these values and converts them into a signal that represents sort of an all things considered set of positive or emotional or a negative affective valence associated with choosing different courses of action. Right? And all this occurs without what we think of as deliberate logical reasoning. That is, it occurs non-consciously, it occurs very rapidly. That's not to say that neural structures associated with deliberate reasoning play no part in the process. Structures such as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, for instance, appear to modulate the stimuli received by the ventromedial uh, prefrontal cortex, and thus the signal that it generally generates. But research at least suggests that those inputs don't so much override emotion as modulate uh, emotional processing. And the philosopher Jim Woodward um, suggests that good practical decision-making is the product of what we traditionally think of as both emotion and logical deliberation. But he suggests that this distinction itself may be misleading. What he suggests is, if by emotional we mean structures that are affective, involved in evaluation, that is appraisal of what ought to be the case and in motivation, then structures like the VM PFC are indeed involved in emotional processing. But this does not mean that they are non-representational impervious to influence from learning or by cognitive structures or passive in the sense of not involved in modulation and control of other neural structures. So processing in these structures, he argues, seems to involve an intermixture of elements we associate with information processing and with affect. And so we think of this as emotional uh, processing. And Woodward suggests that this greatly enhances behavioral flexibility and modification of behavior as a, a result of learning and enables humans to move beyond fixed input-output patterns of response. So emotional states, uh, the research suggests, are not simply brute, instinctive, unmediated experiences, sentiments, but they're the product of neural processing, processing that actually features the type of representation, calculation, and learning regarded as typical of more deliberate uh, cognitive processes. Now, what might this have to do with moral decision-making? Well, here, uh, I think this is more speculative, um, but I think it's, it's worth, uh, I think, pursuing the possibility that this general sort of emotional processing that occurs may play at least some role, perhaps, in some kinds of decision-making that we think of as moral. Uh, certainly not positing that, you know, there is a single system 
within the brain engage in what we think of as moral processing, or that there aren't a multiplicity of, of different types of moral judgments, right? I mean, Walter Senator Armstrong, who is here, argues that the whole notion of morality is not really a unified concept, that there's sort of a series of sort of disaggregated, maybe more localized sorts of assessments, which I tend to agree with. But in any event, um, one important aspect of morality, again, I'll use the term in general terms, as though perhaps uh, colloquially at least maybe unified, is that it's concerned with guiding our conduct and interactions with others. Right? That's not the, uh, that doesn't exhaust all morally salient aspects of the world, but that's certainly an important dimension of it. These interactions can be an especially significant source of reward or pain, right? They often present us with situations that involve a considerable amount of uncertainty. And navigating this complex and fluid social terrain requires probabilistic judgments about others' intentions, their values, their emotional states, their likely responses to our actions, and other considerations that are relevant in determining how to act in a given situation. This generally requires uh, quite rapid recognition and assessment of subtle social cues for which non-conscious emotional processing is more suitable, generally, than deliberative uh, cognitive processing. This enables us very quickly to anticipate, essentially to read others, right? We've all had this experience, right? To anticipate the likely positive or negative emotional or affective consequences associated with responding in different ways in a social situation, right? And uh, at least some research suggests that the VMPFC plays an important role in processing these complex social emotions, such as guilt, embarrassment, empathy, resentment, and more generally recognizing emotion, emotions in others, right? And research also suggests that um, at least some moral learning relies on this process of reflecting on the emotional states we experience as a result of our behavior toward others. Right? Perceptions attuned to others' experience guided by appreciation of their mental states can lead us to identify pain or distress, while empathy, <clears throat> empathy of course, can generate negative emotional signals that lead us to want to relieve it. Right? Now, Ideally, this process of moral learning begins early in life, so a child may hit another child, whereupon an adult may say, how would you like it if he did that to you, right? This ideally induces an empathic response in the first child, an aversion to what she has done, and moral learning over time consists of the association of that aversive emotion with the transgressive behavior. Right, that, that elicited it. Um, that's communicated um, in the future through an affective signal by the, v, uh, the MPFC that biases an individual away from such behavior. Right? People also learn from moral instruction, often in the form of stories and illustrations, in which they learn to have adverse or favorable reactions to various sorts of behavior without actually engaging in that behavior, sort of in the process of imaginative uh, uh, experiencing. Um, and support 
for at least some relationship between social and moral learning comes from the fact that the neural areas activated when subjects uh, have at least certain kinds of moral intuitions that involve response to complex, multifaceted moral decisions that involve moral dilemmas seem to be just the areas active in aspects of social cognition involving automatic, affect-laden processing. And considerable research suggests that when these areas are damaged, there is uh, adverse impact on the ability to engage in effectively in what we think of as moral reasoning, and at least of the type that are, that are presented uh, in the scenario. So one implication of this, and Jim Woodward, among others, has suggested this, is that there may well not be neural structures that we think of as sort of dedicated, if you will, to um, moral cognition, if you want to call it that. Woodward argues, for instance, that um, we may well engage in certain neural processing in situations that involve other people, and that some types of judgments that we think of as moral may be a subset of this more basic sort of neural processing that involves uh, sort of mapping or reading and responding to the social world. Um, that's at least one, uh, one possible thesis. Um, in any event, this potential role of emotional processing also suggests that enduring strong affective valences associated with features of situations that, ha that have morally salient, moral salience may be especially likely to bridge the gap between moral decision-making and moral behavior. That is, it's well known that there's a difference between engaging in deliberation and coming to a conclusion about what is morally, morally appropriate and actually acting on that. Right? Um, and some suggest um, that emotion may enhance our ability in moving us to behave in ways that we have concluded are moral if those conclusions are the product of aversion to or attraction to particular courses of action. Um, one source of uh, aversion or attraction, for instance, may be the role of emotional processing in uh, simulating the mental and emotional states of others since, as one scholar suggests, the simulation works by our actually undergoing aspects of the processing underlying the mental state that we are detecting. Affective process thus may help in providing the motivation to act on the moral conclusion that we reach. So there's a, a bit of a, a hint of Hume here, although there are certainly some significant differences uh, with Hume. So in any event, um, research suggests that individuals in at least some cases may engage in rapid non-conscious decision-making about situations that have some dimensions that we think of as moral in some way, and that neural structures associated with emotional processing right, may uh, play a role in both perceiving uh, the, what I will call moral perception uh, and in moral assessment of different courses of action, and indeed in, in moving us to act in accordance with uh, our assessment of those different courses of action. Right? 
So what I want to do now is go back to Sergeant Wooderick at Haditha and at least uh, think about how we might reconstruct what he did uh, in the terms that I've just described. Right? Um, and my hope here, obviously, is not to provide by any means a definitive reconstruction, but at least to see whether uh, it is plausible to think of what he did in these terms and what the implications of that might be. So um, what I want to do is think of his uh, perceptions <clears throat> and his implicit deliberation one minute before the IED went off uh, and one minute after the IED went off. Right? And work on non-conscious decision-making uh, suggests that in any uh, situation, our perception is shaped very much by our concerns, our goals, our aims in that setting. This narrows us to focus on cues in the environment we regard as relevant to those interests, which we have then in turn organize into larger patterns that define, if you will, the situation um, for us. These patterns are infused with emotional significance which is transmitted, as I mentioned uh, earlier, through this very, these various neural systems, uh, among other places, to the, the VMPFC, which engages in this emotional processing. So if we accept that as a, as a very broad and very general um, sort of uh, description. So one minute before the, the, the explosion, right? the salient goal in Wooderick's mind was to travel safely back to home base. Right? avoiding the most likely threats, which were IEDs and ambushes. Right? Uh, his main orientation, we could say, was vigilance. He was focused on cues in the environment, most likely to signal, to indicate possible danger. Okay? From an emotional standpoint, this orientation of vigilance was prompted, naturally, by strong anticipated negative emotions associated with the prospect of being attacked. Right? Um, obviously, we can see these emotions as reflecting a basic desire for self-preservation. What would he have regarded as morally salient features of the situation as he saw it? Well, at least one important element of a perception that a situation has morally salient features is, as James Rest has put it, the awareness that something one might do or is doing can affect the welfare of someone else, either directly or indirectly. So if we at least focus on that aspect of morality to think about what might be morally salient in Wooderick's universe, if you will, a minute before the explosion, one group of people, obviously, who would be affected by what he did were the men in his squad. Right? As a leader of the squad, he had a moral responsibility to bring them back safely. The prospect of failing to do so would have elicited anticipated emotional distress. In this respect, his vigilance in identifying possible threats right, had a moral dimension, you might say. It wasn't purely self-preservation. I'll leave self-preservation and morality aside uh, uh, for the moment. Another group of people who would be affected by Wooderick's actions was, of course, the local population. 
he had a moral responsibility not to harm those who posed no danger to his squad. And in distinguishing those who could and could not be harmed, he was guided by the rules of engagement, which said someone had to exhibit hostile action or hostile intent right, in order to be harmed. Okay. Now, ideally, Wooderick would have taken care to distinguish innocent from hostile persons because of anticipated emotional distress from the prospect of killing an innocent person. Right? Aversion to this distress would be based on, I think, normal moral sensibilities. And there's no indication that Wooderick was atypical in any sense. And military training that, in, that reinforced it. Right? So in this posture of vigilance, the prospect of opening fire on five unarmed men standing <clears throat> by a car likely would have triggered anticipated vigilance as he was traveling back to home base, not being under attack, simply scanning the environment. Had he seen five men standing by a car without weapons, no overt sort of exhibition of hostility, it's unlikely he would have done what he later did. Right? Now, he probably would have taken more time right, to look more closely for any indications of whether they had hostile intent. So Woodrick's vigilance that morning prompted him to engage in tactical maneuvers to minimize danger. He changed the normal route back to the base as the convoy turned onto the road where the explosion later occurred. Woodrick also moved his vehicle to the left side of the road, and then the attack occurred. The IED blew up, the vehicle behind him was thrown into the air, one person was killed, and then the men in the squad organized these situational cues into a pattern that defines the situation as one in which they're under attack, right? And Marines have standard procedures to follow after an IED attack. As one said, we call those remedial action. What would happen if there was a close ambush, far ambush, and IED? We run through these every single briefing so it becomes memorized in your head so that if it does happen, you can react without thinking. For an IED, it's always get out of the kill zone, cordon off the area, look for a trigger man. And Wooderick said later, at this point, I realized my mission had changed. Okay, so prior to the explosion, He's trying to get back to the base safely. He's in this orientation of vigilance. Now he's under attack. We had practiced this scenario before on whiteboards, in classrooms, in front of superiors, subordinates, peers. My training would take over from here. So Wooderick now is in a new situation whose most relevant features are one of his men has been killed and his squad is under attack. Emotionally, the first feature of the situation likely triggers anger and perhaps a, de a desire for revenge. The second likely triggers fear and emotional aversion to the prospect of not bringing his men back safely to the base, not to mention himself. So he focuses on locating the IED trigger man and identifying who is attacking. There were some reports of small arms fire uh, after the IED, which was a, a common sort of tactic uh, that was used. Um, and his cues in looking for who may be attacking, they have moral salience for the reason I suggested earlier, because someone out there killed one of his men and may be trying to kill him and his squad. But at the same time, the responsibility not to harm innocent 
civilians remains a morally salient feature of the situation, right? He also should be experiencing some emotional aversion to the prospect of violating this responsibility. This should lead him to engage in accurate, positive identification of hostile action or hostile intent. So right after the IED goes off, Woodward pulls to the side. He sees the five Iraqi men. He said, the first thing I noticed outside my vehicle was a white four-door sedan to the southwest. He said, so my immediate thought is, okay, maybe this was a car bomb. Okay, maybe these guys had something to do with the IED. So Wooderick regards the presence of the men itself as a possible cue of hostile action and intent. The IED and the men themselves are associated very closely in his mind. He then says there were military-age males that were inside that car. The only thing out that was Iraqi was them. And notice the term military-age males, right? Now, he doesn't say there were five young men, there were five people of college age. These are military-age males. He regards this as an additional cue that inclines him to interpret them as hostile. And then one of his colleagues, Sergeant Delacruz, was yelling at them in broken Arabic to get down on the ground. Woodrick said they were not complying. In fact, they were starting to run in the opposite direction, away from where Corporal Delacruz was approaching them. Woodrick regards this as the final cue necessary to positively identify the men as hostile. He then opens fire and kills all of them. Right. And this, again, in the span probably of less than a minute. Okay. So I think it's plausible to suggest Woodrick's sense of what was morally salient in this situation was dominated by his desire to find who had triggered the IED and to protect himself and his men. His process of what we might call interpretation his reading of the cues was not sufficiently influenced by anticipated emotional distress from the prospect of killing innocent civilians. He did not, in other words, experience an emotion strong enough to slow this rapid sort of um, information processing he was undergoing and the direction that it led him which was governed by emotions of anger and fear, right? What could have interrupted this? Um, well, you might say, well, had he just calmed himself and taken more time to deliberate rationally, this would have led him to realize that what he was seeing couldn't on its face suffice to fire on them. He would need to look more closely, right? But he was unlikely under these circumstances to draw at least fully on this faculty of rational deliberation. I would argue what was more likely to interrupt his rapid information processing and, interp and interpretation was an emotional response. Again, anticipated emotional aversion to killing innocent civilians that would have tempered the other emotions that were leading him in a certain direction. Right? Had, there, had that anticipated response involved greater emotional um, uh, aversion, this could have led him to take just another minute or, or less to seek additional information about the men. Had anyone seen them before the explosion? 
In fact, someone had seen them in the convoy and had waved them over to the side. That's how they ended up where they were. Instead of relying on his colleagues' broken Arabic, he could have turned to the Iraqi soldiers in his unit to communicate with the men. Right? He could have taken a few seconds to consider anyone triggering an IED likely would be moving away from the convoy, not approaching it. So responding with the right emotion, in other words, based again on this anticipated emotional distress, could have slowed his response enough to allow reason to gain more influence. Indeed, I think without this immediate non-conscious emotion, there might be little prospect that reason actually could have much influence. Right? So what was necessary was for him somehow to retain a strong enough visceral emotional aversion to the prospect of killing innocent civilians when the situation changed from one of vigilance to being under attack. Right? Um, so I'll conclude with what implications there might be for military uh, ethics training. Right? Um, certainly, Wooderick was familiar with the Geneva Conventions. He had been briefed on the rules of engagement in the theater. Right? Um, what, what could have strengthened this visceral emotional aversion that I described that might have led him right, to um, not to open fire on the men? Um, research suggests that at least two mechanisms might trigger a, a morally appropriate emotional aversion. One is what's called outcome aversion. This reflects a first-person, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, a first-person uh, perspective. Um, outcome aversion uh, is contrasted with action aversion, which is a, um, uh, a perspective, actually, of the perpetrator. L let me give you an example. Researchers illustrate this by using the example of uh, one person hearing about another person slicing the throat of someone. The outcome aversion model maintains that the emotional response to hearing about this scenario is grounded in empathy for the victim and the distress caused by imagining the suffering of the victim. Right? And naturally, uh, empathy plays a significant role uh, in that process. Right? In this way, as uh, Don Pizarro has suggested, empathic arousal operates as a first alert, signaling moral relevance. Right? So thinking back to Wooderick, what could military training have done other than make sure he, he knew the con Geneva Conventions and the rules of engagement? Well, um, it's not uncommon for service members in situations such as Iraq to have indifference or even resentment toward the local population. Right? The sense that they're not cooperating, the sense that maybe they're in fact assisting the enemy Right? And I've heard people talk about the importance of, of unit of squad leaders, unit leaders uh, at different levels, of educating forces about the lives of people who are caught in these conflicts. You know, they don't represent the standard sort of fully autonomous uh, chooser that we tend to think of ourselves uh, as being. Right? 
they're enmeshed in a very complex web of, of, of uh, relationships that may subject them to danger from a variety of different sources. Right? To the extent, I have heard at least, that one appreciates this, that may trigger at least some degree of empathy, and therefore uh, a greater emotional aversion to killing someone who is in fact uh, innocent. Action aversion uh, involves uh, an emotional response that puts oneself in the shoes of the perpetrator rather than the victim. Right? So in, my, in the example, how would it feel to slice someone's throat? Right? And research suggests that the result of the distress uh, that results may, may, the roots of this may be empathic, but that over time this may be internalized so that emotional distress occurs even with the knowledge that no one is being hurt. So someone hears about someone's throat you know, being slashed with a rubber knife, right? Or the prospect of firing a toy gun at someone actually el can elicit emotional distress even knowing that no one is going to be harmed because one has internalized this. Am I the sort of person who does this, right? And that's what's known as action aversion. And for action aversion, you know, one way maybe of enhancing the appropriate, uh, what I would call an emotional response, right, could be to foster a greater sense of professional duty that focuses on protecting innocent people, right? The, a sense of professional identity in which there is distress at the prospect of violating this professional duty to protect the innocent, right? Um, that, you know, this is just, this is the sort of thing we don't do. We're here to protect these people, right? And your duty, you can, you could undermine the mission. That's a more pragmatic, right, sort of uh, argument. But, you know, that's not who we are. That's, that's not what we do. We take steps to try to avoid that, right? So, as I say, this is all, uh, to me, certainly quite suggestive. Um, you'll see at the bottom there a reference to Aristotle, and that's even more speculative and even more suggestive. But it does seem to me that to the extent we focus on trying to inculcate um, the propensity to respond with the right sort of emotion, there is at least some resemblance to Aristotle's notion of habituation, right? Um, and um, I can't go very far because I haven't thought, uh, certainly haven't thought deeply about this, but it does seem to me that sort of cultivating the right kinds of emotion bears some resemblance to what, uh, what he was talking about. So again, um, I'm really a, more or less at the beginning of this research project. I think there's some interesting uh, avenues of inquiry. I think there are also probably some challenges. Um, but um, thank you for your attention, and I welcome your comments and questions. Thank you.